Our text this morning is from two passages. First one is in 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 16, and the second from Isaiah 35. These are the words of God. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And from Isaiah 35:10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, that you speak to us through it. We pray now that you would do the miracle of preaching, that you would work through me, your servant, to proclaim to us, the congregation, your mighty word, that you would change us through it, we would be conformed into the likeness of Jesus through it, and you would be glorified in it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One of the striking features of heaven-born reformations, when God pours out his spirit upon his people or upon a people, and there's a reformation, there's a renewal, a reinvigoration of the people of God, one of the striking features of it, one of the things that comes along with it, is a restoration of biblical worship, biblically ordered worship. And from this fountain springs psalms and hymns of praise. It goes together. As God pours out his spirit upon a people, one of the fruits of that is songs of praise. The people want to sing. They want to lift their praises. In our time, we face a similar need to restore biblically ordered worship to the church. We live in a time when it's, it's dismal. We look around us and we see the condition of our, of our culture, of our nation, And we need a a reformation, we need a renewal, and one of the fruits of that renewal will be biblically ordered worship in the church. And to do this, that means we need to go to the word, not our preferences. Oftentimes we want to construct our worship services in such a way as to think, who will this appeal to? How do we uh, appeal to the broadest possible audience? How do we bring in the hordes? Rather than asking, who is this worship service for, first and foremost? It's an interesting thing that we, often, we call it a worship service, and I want to emphasize that word, service. And the question is, who is being served here? We are to bring our service to God our praise to God. And so this means going to the word, not just our preferences, not just our cultural sensibilities, to determine how we are to bring glory to his name. How we are to bring the glory due to his name. The overwhelming instruction throughout scripture is to give glory. But all too often, we in the church, in the 21st century, have opted to give mass-produced nonsense. And so imagine you get a phone call that some dignitary is going to join you for dinner tonight. And so you scramble, you work all day, slaving away in the kitchen to open a can of Spam. Pop it on the plate, microwave it, and say, look, here you go, honorable sir. Now you'd think, here's this honorable dignitary, this esteemed person, I'm honored with his presence and, and we opt, in our, in our modern worship setting, uh, we often opt to just give the mass-produced spam. Plop it on the plate and say, here you go, Lord. This appeals to a broad range of people, right? Some of you are going, spam? No way. Some of you aren't even old enough to know what spam is. 
But nowhere is this more evident than in our prevailing approach to music in our corporate worship services. What we've opted for in our worship as a 21st century church is it's evident that we've opted for the mass-produced options as opposed to bringing glory. So when we look at the text before us in 1 Chronicles, one of the things that we'll, we'll note is that this, this is as David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem after it had been in exile for over 100 years. If you recall, uh, the high priest Eli, had um, his, his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had uh, brought the ark of covenant into battle with the Philistines, thinking that that could be some talisman of, of God coming with them to, to conquer their enemies. And instead, they were routed, they were killed, the ark was captured, and it went into exile. And it sort of had a couple stops along the way. But this, is, this passage in First Chronicles is David is now bringing the ark after a couple uh, pit stops along the way. The ark is now being brought back into Jerusalem, uh, into its resting place, after a, a good period of around 100 years. And for a time, we should note that it, it had dwelt in the, the household, the Gentile household of Obed-Edom, and we're told that God blessed the house of Obed-Edom while he cared for uh, the Ark of Covenant. God blessed his house. A, a Gentile household in Israel was blessed as he tended to the Ark of Covenant. And so as David is bringing this Ark, the Ark back into Jerusalem, we're provided with a detailed description of everything. It's one of those passages where if you're, if you're not careful, you can just sort of glaze over and go, okay, he's describing the, 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 the utensils that they're going to use, the instruments they're going to use, the, the ordering of the Levite um, uh, ranks, the divisions of the Levites there in First uh, Chronicles 15, the, the chapter before, 15, 16 through 24. And then detailed descriptions of the sacrifices that were offered. And while the expected thank offerings are made in First Chronicles uh, 16, 1 through 2, so they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. They gave the expected thank and praise offerings there is a new offering that is described. And that new offering should stand out like a successful trick play at a football game where you look at it and it pops and it stands out and it was, it was successful and it, it, it fits and you go, that's, how can we not have seen that coming? But it worked and it's fitting and it was glorious and it, it was amazing. And so the chronicler describes this new offering which David arranges. And this offering is a sacrifice of song. David has composed a psalm to sing, and then he arranges the Levitical choirs to sing it. Whereas the Mosaic law had described uh, the Levitical tribes were to uh, prepare for the, the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, and the various um, utensils in the uh, in, the, in the tabernacle, David has now arranged them into choirs and given them, this is now the work you're to do. He arranges the Levitical choirs to sing this psalm. And in that psalm, among other things, to abbreviate it, the saints of God are called to give glory and to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that glory can be embodied in a number of ways, and particularly throughout the Psalms, we're told how that should be embodied. Uh, it is to be embodied in both volume and quality. So if we look at Psalm 33. Verse 3. Sing unto, the, uh, sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud 
noise. And again, in Psalm 98... Ninety-eight, verse four: Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. The glory can be embodied in both volume and quality. So skillfully and with a loud, joyful noise. In other words, use your outdoor voices. We're repeatedly summoned to make a loud and joyful noise, skillfully accompanied with the understanding of faith to sing praise, to make, to make music skillfully and with joy and with a loud noise. There's no shushing of the heavenly choir. So this reformation of worship that David is leading uh, by establishing the tabernacle of Zion as the center of Israel's worship should be seen, when we read through the Old Testament, this moment should be seen as one of the Old Testament's high points, if not the high point of the New Testament, of the Old Testament. See, Zion was a stronghold, um, a, sort of a fortress of David, right, right next to Jerusalem. And this is where the, the tabernacle of David was erected, and where, as we read here in First Chronicles, where the ark was brought uh, to rest until the, the temple of Solomon was built a generation later. This is the tabernacle of David was erected and where the ark was brought and what's interesting about the tabernacle of David is it's just one big tent, whereas the tabernacle of Moses had three divisions to it. This one was just one big tent with the ark in the center of it. And the courts were filled with choirs singing these psalms that David and others had composed. The offerings in the tabernacle of David were primarily offerings of song. And at David's time, so at David's time, the animal sacrifices were primarily taking place at Gibeah and until Solomon's temple was constructed. So then if we skip ahead a few centuries, Isaiah's vision presents a scene of redeemed saints, redeemed and restored saints ascending to where? To Zion with songs and everlasting joy. And so as Isaiah is making proclamations of, of judgment, the looming judgment that rests over unbelieving Judah and how they've forsaken the ways of the Lord and the judgment that is coming, one of the, the promises hidden behind that is there in Isaiah 35, our text. The promise behind it was that God would restore his people to Zion. And what they would do as they came up to Zion was to sing merry songs, songs of joy, everlasting joy. And so this tabernacle of David on Zion, when, when then Solomon built the temple a generation later, the name Zion got transferred to Mount Moriah where the temple was built. And so throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, they don't speak of Moriah. You'll hear these prophetic promises and the place where the, the restored captives, the restored saints, as they're returning back to Israel, the place they're going is Zion. This house of David, as it were. And what they do as they go up to Zion is sing merry songs. So all of this, both David's reformation of emphasizing song in Israel's worship and Isaiah's vision of the restored Israel anticipates that Messiah's courts would be filled with songs from both Jews and Gentiles. 
You'll notice that throughout the old te- the, the prophets speak of the nations streaming up to Zion with these songs of everlasting joy uh, filling their mouths. As one commentator points out, whereas the tabernacle of Moses was filled with a cloud of smoke, the temple of Christ is filled with a cloud of song. When we look at the Old Testament victories, one of the things that's noteworthy is that it is the songs that are recorded in detail. Whereas the details of the thank offerings are oftentimes either passed over entirely or very briefly described. And not only that, but for all the 12-year-old boys, uh, they're, they're slightly disappointed when the battles themselves often receive only the concise description, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And all the teenage boys are like, couldn't you give me more detail than that? <laughs> couldn't you give, like, how many swords? And he jumped up and swung his sword. We want... But what's, de- what's described, what's recorded, are the songs. When God grants victory to his people, when God delivers his people, when he grants victory, the people sing. And these songs are written down, they're recorded, so that we too might join the chorus of God's saints and remember back to Jehovah how he has delivered his people in times past in hope that his mighty arm will once more be bared to deliver us in our present conflicts and in our future battles. As we look through the story of the Old Testament, after Pharaoh and his army were defeated at the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15 lead Israel in celebratory songs of praise. And they sing, the horse and his rider has been cast in the sea. Jehovah has delivered us. Moses, again, a generation later, leads Israel in song after the 40 years of wandering as they look to begin the conquest of Canaan in Deuteronomy 32. It says that Moses taught this song in the ears of Israel as they look at the, um, the, the deliverance from the unbelieving apostate generation who hadn't believed the Lord's promise to take the land, as they looked at the victory over the, that generation passing away and the promise of being able to enter the, 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 the promised land, uh, Moses leads them once again in a song of God's avenging justice. Deborah and Barak in Judges 5 sang of the Lord's deliverance of his people from the Canaanites after Jael had drove a tent peg through Sisera's skull. And they sing of God's mighty deliverance. Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, prayed a prayer which rings with poetic glory, musical glory, as she rejoices over her rival in 1 Samuel 2, 1. And Mary draws heavily from that prayer in the Magnificat when when the announcement of Christ being conceived in her is announced by the angel. So as, a, as an enemy is overthrown, as a rival is overthrown, as God grants a victory, the people of God sing. Again, we see in David's Reformation, after he had driven out the Philistines and the other enemies of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, David establishes in Zion a reformation, a a fixture of musical worship. David's reformation was a profound incorporation of this musical tradition that we see throughout the uh, the Old Testament leading up to David's day. We see it hinted at, but David makes it a fixed feature 
of the worship of the Lord. And generations later, Jehoshaphat famously sent the Levitical choirs, which David had originally organized, he sends them as the vanguard into a battle with Judah's enemies in 2 Chronicles 20. Our first thought isn't to send the choir into battle. Jehoshaphat wisely sees that this is the way that God's people fight. And if we zoom forward then to the New Testament, there's a curious note in Revelation 15.3 that the saints who overcame the beast, as they look in the conquest that God has wrought in overthrowing the kingdoms and the cities of men, as they look at that deliverance, they sing in joy for their victory. And what they sing, we're told, is an abbreviated version of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And it's called there in Revelation also the Song of the Lamb. This Song of Moses is also the Song of the Lamb. John's vision invites us to see that Christ has delivered his people from every nation once more. He's delivered them once more from Egypt, i.e. unbelieving Jerusalem, while preparing them to conquer the land by bringing heavenly Jerusalem everywhere they go. So notice the pattern. God grants a great deliverance. God saves his people, and God's people start singing. And we not only see this throughout the Old Testament, but after Pentecost and in early church history, we see songs of praise to Christ being composed. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 was likely an early Christian hymn to Christ. Same with Colossians 1, 15 through 20, 1 Timothy 3, 16, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, 1 John 2, 2 through 12, and 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. And they sang them with the description and revelation of the great host of God's people, God's saints, is that they sing heartily and they make a ruckus, they make a loud noise, even in the face of the fiercest persecution. So a problem arises in our modern day. There's a, there's a modern tendency, especially in Christian circles, to assume that music is just interchangeable, that it's just a, merely a matter of preference, that, hey, that might be your cup of tea, but it's not my cup of tea. Or it's just a bag of candy that you can reach in and you pull out. I like the green ones. You like the pink ones. Why do they put the yellow ones in there at all? Some of you say heresy. But music, as one a wit once said, is like candy, and you should just throw away the wrappers. <laughs> some of you, it'll drop later today, but... Not all the rappers, just some. But if we, if we just assume that music is interchangeable and merely a matter of preference, we, we, we run into a brick wall of reality. None of us would dare to break into a yodeled polka tune at a funeral unless you wanted to be invited out very quickly. Nor would we think a death metal song appropriate for a bridal procession. Just because you can sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island doesn't mean you should. In other words, we want our music to rhyme with the truths they proclaim. We want these gospel truths, we want these great deliverances of our God to be matched up with music that is glorious. With music that is stirring, with music that is reverent and holy and good. And thus, joyful reverence is the tone. 
trying to cram the eternal glories of the triune God into the tin can of pop music is a fool's errand. Monosyllabic la-las set to pop melodies don't compare with Watts' skillful poetry paired with the harmonic glories of Bach. As a, growing up, I, uh, my dad was a youth pastor, and we, um, I, I learned the guitar, and you know, that worked out well because dad said, all right, you can start leading the songs at our youth group. Hey, there you go. Take it away, kid. And as I began leading songs and, and, and trying to pick songs, I, I continually was struck by the fact that so much that was passing for uh, acceptable songs in the church were just a bunch of monosyllabic la-la set to pop music. So for instance, take this as an example. Every move I make, I make in you. You make me move, Jesus. Every breath I take, I breathe in you. Every step I take, I take in you. You are my way, Jesus. Every breath I take, I breathe in you. Waves of mercy, waves of grace. Everywhere I look, I see your face. Your love has captured me, oh my God, this love how can it be? And here's the punchline. La, 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 Potent. Now, there's simple truths there that are good and, and no necessarily, not necessarily any quibble with it. But compare it as, as a thematic equivalent to this uh, out of the Welsh Revival. Not, we're not even talking the music that's accompanying it yet, just the poetry. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide, and through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. In thy truth thou dost direct me by thy spirit through the word. And thy grace my need is meeting as I trust in thee, my Lord. Of thy fullness thou art pouring thy great love and power on me. Without measure, full and boundless, drawing out my heart to thee. They're not on the same foot. They're not even in the same category. Our music, whether we acknowledge it or not, is part of a larger battle. The question is whether we will have arrows that are straight and sharp and sturdy or else they are flimsy and blunt and bent. The question arises, is there objective truth and beauty or are we just gonna go along with the prevailing postmodern thought that we can just slap a boring chord progression to some random assemblage of words, a, a song generator, and call it good, call it glory, call it here you go, Lord, as C.S. Lewis once insightfully noted that there's a tendency for church music to be, as he said, fifth-rate po poems set to sixth-rate music. We don't want that. We want the best offering we can bring. We want to bring glory. The brilliant ordering 
of notes into melodic patterns with thrilling harmonies stacked on top of profound, theologically sound poetry is an arrow in our quiver that the church should not toss aside. So many of you, we've, we've noted it many times that our church has added uh, hundreds of folks in the last two or so years. Uh, and, and, and a visitor or a new, a new member could attend our services for a year or more and be unaware of some of our primary theological distinctives, i.e. that we're reformed, post-millennial, uh, presuppositional, pedo, well, more and more pedo-baptism is, uh, you see it every Sunday, so there's no getting around that these days. But, but on the first Sunday they're here, a visitor uh, will be confronted with our musical priorities as a church. And if God is especially kind to you, it'll be the hardest songs that Sunday. <laughs> and you might go, couldn't we do something easier? Couldn't we do something a bit more entry level? And while we want to get everybody onboarded and, and, and be rowing the same direction, and we want to make sure that we're not leaving folks behind, as it were, one of the things we want to state, I want to state explicitly here as to what our music states weekly, implicitly, is that we aim to be a mighty choir, belting out psalms of God's faithfulness and songs of God's grace to us in Christ. We aim to bring glory to God in the beauty of holiness. In other words, we aim for the congregation to be a choir. To get there, however, the worst thing in the world we could do uh, we, we must not begin with musical literacy. That should come after. We must keep first things first. A musical reformation must begin with evangelical faith. A musical reformation must begin with evangelical faith. As John tells us in his epistle, we understand and know that the Son of God has come and we are in him. The Son of God has come and we are in him. And that is the key signature that dictates the rest of our musical endeavors. And so while we should strive to learn our parts, you should strive, if you're a bass, to learn the bass line. If you're a soprano, to learn the soprano line. If, if there's a fuguing tune, don't just stick your hands in your pocket, but dive in and sing with joy and loudness, striving to learn your part. And, and raising our children to be musically literate, musically skillful, all of that will be a vain project if it's not first springing from gospel joy and every song concluding with a faith-filled amen. The pitch note, then, of our Lord's Day worship is this. It isn't that we can impress our colleagues that you go to that church that sings really nicely. The pitch note isn't that we sing complicated Genevan jigs or fuguing tunes. The pitch note then of our Lord's Day worship is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been delivered. We have been set free. We have been saved. And the response from that is to say, we're the whole realm of nature mind. That we're an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life. My joy, my all. The calling is to look to Christ, to hear the pitch note of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
that by grace you've been brought into Christ. And then we turn and we say, let us bring our best offerings because God accepts them as we bring them in Christ. We aren't aiming to have the Reformed Evangelical equivalent to the Vienna Boys Choir or the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, nor do we want to mindlessly just go along with whatever the record companies decide we should prefer, whatever the latest hit worship song is. Biblical worship is not a job for those people up there to do, whether they're an ornately robed priest muttering Latin or a ripped jeans worship band with a gnarly bassist. In other words, one of the the, the subtle things that's happened time and again in uh, amongst the church throughout history is that worship tends to, you know, the, the priests are the ones doing the worship up front or the worship band is the ones doing the worship up front. What we want to emphasize is that the worship and the service that we bring to God is our work. It's the work of the people of God. It's the work of those who have been redeemed. And like any work, it takes work. And you might not be very good at it at first. Think of like learning to bake bake bread or uh, create some recipe or when you are learning an instrument for the first time. There might be a complicated piece that you're trying to learn. But anybody that's learned an instrument knows that some of those complicated, intricate pieces, if you work at it, if you labor at it, the payoff is great. The reward is great when you're able to execute it successfully. The joy in successfully executing the difficult part or successfully cooking the difficult recipe, the payoff, the joy is great. But remember, that biblical worship is the righteous work of Christ alone. It is Christ who brings our worship to the Father. Yet, since we are in him, we come by him to offer what? We come by Christ to offer glory. This service of worship is the work of Christ's body. It is our work, the church. You cannot worship God rightly if you do not come to him by the Son. If you do not come in the name of Christ, we come to God clothed in the righteousness of the son of David to sing the Psalms of David. So David erected this tabernacle on Mount Zion. And now as Isaiah prophesied, the people of God from every nation are streaming up to that tabernacle, the tabernacle of Zion. And we come by the son of David, the one who perfectly sings these songs the one who perfectly offers to God the righteous sacrifice of praise, and we are in him. And so as we we work together as a congregation to sing these psalms, these hymns, these spiritual songs, you'll note that it's hard work. It might not be everybody's cup of tea, but what we're laboring for is to bring glory and to bring it not by our own merit, by our own deserving, and to say, by golly, look at us, look at how good we look, look at how good we sound, but to bring it as an offering to the King of Kings, bring it as an offering in the Son of David to the King of Kings, our God and Father. And so we come to God each Lord's Day clothed in the righteousness of the Son of David to sing the Psalms of David. As one hymnist said, so come to the Father, 
through Jesus, the Son. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that by your Spirit, you've filled us, you've forgiven us, you've redeemed us from our lowest state. You've set our feet upon a rock and you've set hymns of praise upon our lips. Father, I pray that as we work as a congregation to grow in musical proficiency, that it would not be lost on us that the way in which we come is by the blood of the Son, by the blood of the Son of David, who redeemed us from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue, that we might sing the praises of the Lamb of God. Lord, I pray you would give us grace as we work on, work on this and work in this, that we would bring glory into your courts, the courts of Zion, each Lord's Day. And as we do so, we pray back to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, singing. If you drive around our town of Moscow, you will notice various churches with signs out front. Some beautiful churches. Somewhere on the sign out front, it will say, all are welcome here. I had this experience driving by a church this past week, which had a sign that said that, and then below those words was a multicolored flag. And just for fun, and because I was curious, I drove around the corner to another seedier part of town, where another church had a sign that said, all, 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 all are welcome here, outdoing the first. Now, one of the problems with that type of messaging is that those churches are assuming that other churches are excluding people from attending. Fundamentally, they are reading God's story wrong because you would be hard-pressed to find a church in town that actually forbids others from joining them for worship on a Sunday morning. If you noticed when you came in this morning, our doors were wide open. So let's relate this to the table before us. This table is set before us in the presence of our enemies. This implies that there is an antithesis that runs through this world. There are sons of God and sons of the serpent in this world. This table really is open to all, but we must qualify it as scripture does. In other words, this table is not open to the enemies of Christ. It's open to all who are baptized and who follow the Lord Jesus. If that description fits you, then you are most welcome here at this table. One of the reasons our doors are open to all is because we want others to participate in this meal with us. That's the hope. We want everyone to experience this feast that the Lord offers us every week. This is the only meal in, in this world that actually nourishes us. This is the meal where the Lord meets with us in a very real way. He is present here, and he is with us now. Not only is this banquet waiting for you, but the master of this banquet is waiting for you. Come and taste of his goodness. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. You might say, well, but I can't carry a tune in a bucket. And maybe the people around you agree or not. No judgment here. But the question isn't, can you hit all the right notes? The question isn't, uh, can you, do you recognize the key signature or the time signature? The question is, have you looked to Christ? Uh, in, in bringing glory into God's courts, the only way we can do so is if we first look to Christ. And if you've looked to Christ, how can you keep from singing? So start with the volume, start with the loudness, and move on to the skillfulness. But faith first in the glorious one, and then musical glory comes after. Now here with believing hearts, the benediction of our Father. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And amen.